Hello and welcome back to Enterprise Linux Security, episode 79. I'm here as always with Zhao. How are you doing, Zhao? All good, Jay. It's always a pleasure. I hope Thanksgiving treated you nicely. Didn't put yep. too much weight over over the holidays. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's always a, a pleasure being here with you to, for another episode of the podcast. Um, much agreed. Yep. We're going to talk about how we just love default settings, right? <laughs> among many other things. Um, and actually, not just default settings. We're going to be talking about basically laziness. And I probably hmm. won't be making any friends by the end of this episode. But yeah, man, many of the problems that we're going to be discussing today are at their core just laziness problems. So yeah. Yeah, that'd be a constructive criticism episode, I suppose. <laughs> I don't know if people are going to take it as constructive, but at least they should should get them thinking about the problems. Um, what we're talking about is that, and we keep using their material, but it's because they're very good at creating this type of reports. Um, both CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency in the US, and the NSA, the favorite three-letter agency that everybody loves, um, they came out with a report um, based on their blue and red team operations that they perform at request of organizations. They will go in, they will test their infrastructure, and they will report back their findings. This helps you enhance your security posture. It helps you find any holes that you might not be aware of. And it's better if these guys find it first, because that will have, give you a chance to close those loopholes before somebody exploits them maliciously. Um, so, as part of their last report, they compiled a list of the top 10 misconfigurations that they found over many different places where they run their tests. And basically, it's uh, who's who. I mean, if you have a bingo card on the Enterprise Linux Security podcast by now, you're going to be ticking all the boxes today. Yeah, so, I sure will. Yeah, all the time. <laughs> The first one that they came out with is the default configurations of software and application. Um, this means two things, actually. It's that people don't change away from the default settings. They just deploy stuff and leave it as is. And this includes stuff like leaving read-write by default, having stuff like, say, when you deploy Apache, you have the Apache status page immediately available to everybody as soon as you deploy the package. Um, not limiting stuff like the number of processes that are that the process starts when it's when it's running, those kinds of things. And yep. yeah, when I mentioned before that it was laziness. Well, if if I just deployed a package and it's already running, why am I going to bother with looking at the configuration? It's already working, right? Exactly. Yeah. Why even mess with it? Yeah. So this is. This is difficult to fix, but it's not difficult because it's technically impossible. It's difficult because the way to fix the default configuration on a specific package is not directly tied to the package itself. It's more tied to the environment that it's deployed in. Right. Um, this, this is similar to the best practices gripe that we have here in the podcast where we try to avoid coming out with best practices or the best way to do something or something like that because we don't know your environment. We don't know if something that we are going to advise you to do is actually more secure or not in your environment or if something is less secure and we don't, are not aware of the implications that it has. And the default settings on applications, it's exactly the same thing. 
you need to actually go in and look at each of the settings and in some cases there are hundreds of different settings that you can tune and see that it really adapts to your environment. It's not just deploy the package and be done. And this applies to Linux distributions too, because they, you know, your Linux distro might have ports open by default if you don't look at it, that might invite someone in if there's a vulnerability or that's a poorly configured port. And since you haven't configured anything, if a port is open, it probably is you know, poorly configured. I actually have a, a pretty unpopular um, opinion on this specific topic, which is default configuration shouldn't be runnable. Software shouldn't be immediately runnable unless you actually go in and mess with the configuration file. Now, I remember some years back, I don't know if it's still the case because I haven't deployed it in some time, uh, but SendMail used to be like that. You, you would deploy SendMail and the default configuration wouldn't run. And it wouldn't run until you go through the configuration file and actually commented out a setting that made it not run. Um, and that made you at least open the configuration file and look at the configuration file. It's not that SendMail itself is a good example because it has that cryptic M4 format for the options and you have to compile the options and all of that and it's a big mess. Um, but you had to look at the settings. At least you had to open the file, look for the stuff that you needed to comment out and only then would it be able to run. Um, I know exactly what this means for automation. It means that it kills basically the just deploy a new machine and fire it up and spin it up and it works because you'll have to at least move a working configuration file to the system. You have to at least edit the files through the automation script or whatever tool you're using and make it runnable. It gives you more, it adds complexity to the automation process, but it makes you consider the implications of deploying new packages on your environment that are just exactly that. They're tailored to your environment, to nobody else's. The developer doesn't know where it's going to be deployed. So whatever settings they come out with that they consider to be default are very likely to be wrong for your specific use case. This applies to everything, as you were saying. Uh, applications, Linux distributions, Windows systems, whatever. It doesn't matter. This is an architectural change. It is something that you should be forced to do. Yeah, I agree with you for many reasons. Among them, you know, if you're doing it right, you have to configure things anyway. So if you're going to need to configure it anyway, it may as well just not run until you do. But also, you could argue in the few minutes if you're being targeted heavily, that it, or a few minutes, half hour, hour, whatever it is, that it takes you to change the, the configuration. It's running with the default configuration for that amount of time until you do finish configuring it. And for me, it just doesn't make sense for something to run that you haven't looked at yet, especially if there's a vulnerability or something that just invites somebody in and you haven't had a chance to go in there and change it yet. So I feel like that just makes sense to me and it prevents someone from, hopefully prevents someone from getting hit by something um, from a default setting before they have a chance to configure it. I know some Linux distributions like Alma Linux CentOS and you know the Red Hat family will often not even start a service when you install a package, which is good. But I think that's a step further that just basically gives you a chance as the administrator to say, I have vetted the config file. I spent some time on it. We all agree that it's ready to go. So now I'm going to uncomment this setting and let's open it up. I think that's fair. And this goes for other stuff as well, default firewall configurations, for example, um, they're not as restrictive as they should be. And I know, again, you're, you're basically trading off convenience for security. The problem is that the pendulum 
swings one way or the other and it's really hard to find that sweet spot because it's environment dependent. Uh, but to make it more broadly appealing, and this is a gripe against basically any piece of software out there, distributions or not, uh, but they tend to favor usability over security. And that's a problem right. because then the burden gets shifted to the, the admins, the operators, people, site reliance operators, whatever role you're, you're using to, to do these tasks. And whether it's because you're overworked, because you're understaffed, because there's not enough resources, there's not enough time, there's not uh, permission, um, it just makes it easy to deploy a system and not really consider very much the implications of that. And that gets you in trouble down the line. And that's why this is the top thing that these guys found out when they were doing their operations. Yeah, and I will give a little bit of a spoiler. There's not too many, in my opinion, on this list that are all that surprising. But I feel like this is also a good foundational episode for anyone that's, you know, first getting started with this podcast. Because all of these are very important. And uh, we have some additional ones in the Second one, I have a lot to say about, if you didn't have any additional thoughts on the first one. I don't have on the first one, but I have on what you just said, that this is important for someone starting out. The reason that this is number one on this list is not because this is just a problem for someone starting out, is that even seasoned professionals are not taking this seriously enough, are not paying the right attention to this, or are not considering this to be a problem when it is. And we're talking about large organizations being tested. It's not like your mom and pop store from the corner can ask CISA or the NSA to run a cybersecurity test on them. This is coming from tests that are run on large organizations on important stuff, whether federal or private companies. And those guys, they run tight ships. They have large, large groups running IT. So the fact that even them have problems like this means that the problem is far more broader than just a starting level problem. Yeah, I, I will add one more thing to this, actually, because I think this is a balance across the board, not just at enterprise um, organizations, but with software engineering as a whole. If I was a developer developing an open source product that I you know, re released publicly for everyone to download and it had default settings that didn't work or you know something wasn't tuned in a certain way, then my forums are gonna be full of people complaining, it doesn't work, this program is garbage because I can't even get it to run. Um, obviously they could have probably looked at the documentation, but um, I, I feel like it's also a balance, like especially convenience versus security is something we talk about a lot. You have you know volunteers in the forums having to answer these you know repetitive questions and then it's like, okay, do we, relax the settings a little bit to, so we could keep up with the messages? Do we you know, force people to um, read the documentation and maybe someone that's, that doesn't know as much will give the program a bad review? And then in enterprise, you have you know, someone that's not as seasoned might be more keen to let the default slide than a more seasoned administrator would. But then again, that's more work to roll something out. So um, it is the case that this you know, goes against convenience, but as we see more and more, that's just the way it is. There's no security without inconvenience. Unfortunately. Um, so yeah, let's move to the second one. Improper separation of user and administrator privilege. Oh boy, this is a very fun one. Oh yeah. Um, first of all, this affects a lot of different things. It's not actually just actual user accounts. It also considers the service accounts. 
Stuff like running your web server as root rather than as a separate account, stuff like adding those services to a privileged group just because you don't want to go through the hassle of giving privileges to that specific account. Um, and this has many implications, and, and I'll let you hammer on this one in a minute. Um, but this does something that's not immediately obvious. When you run a service on a higher privilege than it requires, then any vulnerability that appears against that service in the future will not have the risk profile that comes with the vulnerability. Say, if you have a vulnerability that scored a 5.5 or something like that, but you're actually running that service as root, then that 5.5 is meaningless because compromising that service means a complete server takeover. You're not just changing the privileges of the service, you're changing the privileges of any exploits and vulnerabilities that come along. So that's usually not immediately apparent, but that's a very big concern with this. Yep, I absolutely agree. And I, I think this hits different depending on if you're a system administrator or if you're help desk uh, wanting to become a system administrator, for example. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think pretty much everyone that's done help desk has run into an issue where you have that employee that, you know, just can't seem to get along with no admin access to their, you know, physical computer. And they're constantly asking help desk to, you know, help them install like plug in a flash drive if they have that restricted or they buy a new um, external hard drive and then every it seems like every 15 minutes you have to go over there to you know fix something or allow something and then next thing you know someone wants to just give them admin access because they're tired of going over there every five minutes with again inconvenience versus security and then you know obviously if you have root running containers for example that you don't update that's an issue. And going back to workstations, I mean, how many people make it a point to update the meeting apps that they have? For example, you might have uh, Zoom on your computer, you might have another meeting service for this other client, like every business kind of uses a different one. So next thing you know, you have 10 meeting softwares on your computer that never get updated. Then you get admin rights on your computer. And then if you don't update those things, because pretty much nobody thinks to, then that could allow someone in. And then don't even get me started on servers. We've talked a lot about, um, you know, I just mentioned containers running as root. We have apps running as root that if they don't get updated are a full system takeover like you mentioned. So I think spending some time on this and thinking about your entire scope of support and how this affects it and auditing this regularly is really, really important. That is absolutely true. Another thing that ties into this is contractor accounts. And we saw this on the Las Vegas breaches that happened that we talked about some time ago. Mm -hmm. It was caused by a contractor that had more access than it should. When you're considering adding, I mean, this happens all the time. You hire somebody to perform a job, to deploy a system, you buy a device and it comes with the, the with the installation services, so you have somebody in your environment doing that, that person will need some level of access. One way to address that is to create an account for that contractor. The thing is, that account will have privileges because it has to do some things, it has to perform some installation or whatever, and that usually requires privileges. And people will often leave that account created and never kill it when the service is done. So you create the account, you give the credentials to the, the contractor, the contractor performs the job, goes away, and the account remains. 
it's not that I'm accusing the contractor of then using the access further along the line. It's that there's an account with further privileges in your infrastructure that it's leaving just, just forgotten there in the corner. A tip here is that whenever you're creating accounts, and any type of accounts, it should come with an expiration date. You should always set an expiration date for new accounts. If your identity management software doesn't allow you to specify that, Unfortunately, it's not very good, but if, you're, if you can't specify an expiration date for an account, at the very least, create a cron task that will kill that account in a given period of time, at a given moment in the future, so that you don't forget that. You create an account, you create a process to eliminate that account. Um, that is something that you learn along the, along the line, but unfortunately, it's still something that happens. And I would recommend anyone that wants to, you know, take a good look at this, as you should, uh, go back to episode 61, where we talk about the principle of least privilege. That's definitely something that everyone should pay very special attention to. And if you follow that through and through, then that's going to make a big difference. I mean, all, all of the topics that we're, going, that we're covering today, we already had episodes on those specific things. Um, mm -hmm. In all fairness, Today's episode is not for the regular listeners because those should have already learned about these things if they if they weren't familiar with. But unfortunately, we need to keep drumming the keep banging those drums until people start doing these things because it's not being done. It's like in the army; the junkings will continue until morale improves. So yeah. Um, moving on to the next um, insuff insufficient internal network monitoring. Um, usually, what happens on your network, and this is true everywhere. Um, all the eyeballs are on the perimeter firewall. You're paying lots of attention and monitoring and alerting if somebody is trying to come in from the outside in, but you're not paying the same level of attention to your systems communicating with each other. Um, logging and reporting will give you alerts if somebody is trying to hammer a system from the outside, but they won't bat an eye if uh, one system starts hammering the SSH part of another. Um, this is really bad because you're going to miss lateral movement from an adversary. Um, you won't receive any alerts, your monitoring won't care very much. And additionally and related to this, you can start monitoring individual servers, of course, but you need the holistic view of the entire infrastructure. If there were accesses from one host to the next and then a couple of hours later it started from that second host to another, you want to be able to follow that chain. So a centralized monitoring and logging infrastructure is a plus and is a must to avoid this type of problem, which unfortunately still happens. And sometimes uh, there's news of people finding um, outside individuals in their network for you know a large amount of time that have just been there for a while because the connections weren't monitoring or weren't being monitored. I think the classic example of this, and you could Google this story, but it's uh, an individual sometime back was outsourcing his own job. And there was a VPN connection from another country every day for a very long time while the person was watching cat videos and paying someone else to do his work. And um, long story made short, that's the, you know, not as bad as some of the ones that we've seen where you have like complete account takeovers, but definitely keep an eye on your network and monitor all your very important services. If something isn't running and it should, or something is being hammered, like you mentioned, you have to make sure you're getting that information. And um, that's another topic we've covered quite a bit. So definitely some homework for anyone that's new. And this ties into the next one. The next one is called lack of network segmentation. Having 
system segregated away is really good. You have your user space desktops and workstations and you have your servers on another VLAN and that's really nice. But when you lump together all the servers in one VLAN or in one specific subnet or something like that, that's as good as not having any segregation at all because one server that gets taken over means that it can reach and impede all the other servers. If your database server has no good reason to be able to communicate with your file server, and it usually doesn't, then it shouldn't be reachable at all. Uh, that means that you're going to be needing many more VLANs, you're going to be needing many more network segments if you're doing routing, and you're going to have your network admins really pissed at you because they're going to have to do more work. They're going to have to open more ports, they're going to have to add monitoring internally, and they're going to have to go the extra mile for this to work. But Lumping your servers all together in one big bench with no segregation between them, that's not really efficient. And that's not really a secure way to approach this. Yep, I couldn't have said it better any, you know, myself. Definitely separate everything and prevent lateral movement. And, you know, that's definitely something everyone should be paying very special attention to. The next one is not so much funny, but ironic. Um, you want to hear something funny? Two years later, there are still systems vulnerable to Log4j reachable on the internet. Log4j is probably the most widely publicized vulnerability in the past decade or something, and I keep going back to it precisely because it was so widely discussed and it was reported even in non-IT media and it was on the news and all of that, and there are still systems out there reachable from the internet running Log4j compromisable systems. This is really bad. Poor patch management is one of the causes for many breaches out there, and it's one of the highest ranked on this report by CIS and the NSA, precisely because we're still living and finding systems like this out there. Take this rule of thumb. If you have systems that are reachable from the internet, and you can't patch them within a couple of days of the patch being out, for whatever reason, whether it's because you don't have the permissions to take them down, there is too much work, you don't have the resources, then those systems should not be reachable, period. Um, if they're critical enough, you need to pay more attention to them. You need to have implicit authorization to take them down whenever it's necessary, or you need to find a new mechanism to, for patch deployment. And here, yeah, I'm going to promote the, the TuxCare stuff. We have live patching precisely for situations like this. We're not the only ones, obviously, but live patching is a great approach for this type of problem and this type of concern. You don't need to wait for approval, you don't need to wait for permission, you don't need to deploy the patching. Just yesterday, there was this presentation from Microsoft, and they were very... <laughs> they were making a very big fuss about... Um, what do they call it? Uh, hot patching. Um, Microsoft finally, after 17 years of live patching being available, finally has live patching available for Windows Server. Amazing. Hey guys, we have very old t-shirts that we can send you over. Um, but it's great that you finally saw the light and realize how important it is to patch faster and without disruption. Um, this isn't the sky is falling kind of thing. I want it to sound like it is, but this is really, really bad. If your systems are left for too long and patched and they are reachable from the internet, they're very likely no longer your systems. You're fooling yourself if you still believe that. Right. Yeah, complete agreement. And I think for some administrators, the hardest thing is when they want to patch and they're, you know, they're able to do that, 
but they're blocked by, you know, maybe management that doesn't quite understand the need and they want to just wait to update because, you know, nothing's broken right now and they are, you know, big release coming. They don't want to tempt fate, but, you know, sometimes it just, we just have to educate our organization to let them know why this is important and use stories of unfortunate companies that didn't do that because sometimes getting buy-in for management is the problem because this is a situation where, you know, an administrator could be just stretched way too thin and it's just impossible to do all the things. Um, But we got to just make sure we're doing what we can and automate what we can. So that way we're, our resources are freed up to be able to keep up with everything. It's definitely something to keep up on. And if, uh, someone or something is a blocker, then education and automation can get you through it. But you got to get through it or someone else is already through it and they're in. This is one of the problems with cybersecurity and awareness. When you're doing cybersecurity correctly, nothing happens. So you're essentially selling people, okay, I'm doing my job great and I'm doing everything right and nothing happens. So you have nothing to show for it. You haven't been hacked, you haven't been breached, no data has been lost, there's no ransomware on your systems, but that's not tangible. When you have a system and it's not working and you go in and you fix the system and everything comes back together, people see what happened. It was broken, now it's fixed. When you're doing cybersecurity correctly, the only thing you want to show is systems running. And that's their supposed to be state. So you're not actually showing something for your efforts. And this is, this is something that's difficult to translate for somebody that's not tech savvy. So when you're trying to get that point across and you're coming in to people that are not able to understand it, it's very hard to, to make them understand the, the value in cybersecurity and in this specific problem, the value of patching properly and on time. So yeah, it's a really important concern. It's Probably one of the most basic things that you can do to start the cybersecurity posture is to make sure that you're patching on time. And one last thing I'll mention before we move on is if it is your job to patch, then make sure you write down every CVE that the patches you install will help fix. Because then at the end of the year, during your review, you can then say, you know, I've protected the company against, you know, however many CVEs. And then you have the the patch notes to show that. I think that's one thing that someone can do to show that value. Because, like you said, if uh, they're doing their job, um, no one's getting in. They're you know everything's boring because there's no big problems happening. But you got to be able to measure something for that. I think one easy way to do it is just write down the CVEs, and that definitely looks a lot better than saying nobody got hacked. But that's great. But we need a little bit more information than that, and maybe that'll help, but that's a tip for anyone out there that is involved with patch management. Let's move on to the next one. The next category that they found that was very common was bypass of system access controls. Oh, security enhanced Linux, how I love to disable you so much. Oh yeah, that was a classic one. That's That's gotta be number one, uh, the number one thing. It's, it's I, I hate the fact that it's so common that the first thing everyone thinks of is just disable it, it's getting in the way. Oh boy. Convenience versus security, yet again. It's the same problem, it's the same mindset happening again. And I mean, laziness as well. You don't want to be bothered yeah. with and learning that, security and for SE Linux, definitely learn it. Yeah. 
you don't want to learn the syntax, you don't want to go over the commands, and yeah. But it's also something else. It's not. Let's not just hammer on people turning off security enhanced Linux, and I'm guilty of doing that in the past as well. So, um, it's also physical things. It's like handing out all access passes to the guys that come in just to replace some electrical connection in the data center. That's also bypassing system access controls. It's not system in the sense of software, but it's physical access controls. You don't want to give them full access just for them to perform the job, at the very least send somebody in with them that can monitor. Um, this is something that you learn the day that something disappears from your server room. But yeah, it happens. Mm -hmm. The next one is also something that we've hammered constantly in the past. Weak or misconfigured multi-factor methods. I know you like this one. I'll let you go over it. Yeah, I I feel like you know you have situations where you have multi-factor authentication and something really silly just invalidates it. So, for example, you could have someone that has a backup to get in, and the backup is easier than the MFA. Oh, I forgot my uh, my key or something or my second factor. And then there's a button that says, I forgot my device, or I forgot this, and you get an SMS message, which could be spoofed or, or things like that. It's one thing that's hard about this for a lot of companies is when they have a software product, by supporting MFA, they're going to get more calls because you're going to have more people that say, oh, I can't get in. Can you help me out? So then customer service goes up as far as their costs are concerned. And that's hard to deal with. I totally get it. But Sometimes it's the user that invalidates it by making a very um, silly choice, or it's the platform that just wants to curb the calls and has a has an I forgot my MFA button or something like that that they'll click on, and or be able to click on that's presented, which will invalidate it. And SMS is so weak that I don't even consider that a second, uh, you know a second factor because of how insecure SMS is. And if, for those that don't know, I'm talking about text message responses. I mean, um, cell phone, or excuse me, SIM cloning is a thing. Another thing is if you use a password manager and your authenticator and your password manager both sync to your phone, then it's not really multi-factor. It's just one device. If somebody steals your phone, they have both the, the passwords, the something you know, and the something the device, so yeah. It's not multi-factor if you let users do that. Um, another way is not making it mandatory. If some people in your company have special privileges and you let them use just passwords and bypass the multi-factor requirement, then again, you're not configuring it properly, you're not using it properly. Um, it should be mandatory. At this point in time, I know it's less convenient than just typing something, but it should be mandatory at this point. Yep, I agree. Um, it's actually kind of hard to disagree on this type of things, right? It really is, isn't it? It's just we we see this many times, and it, it's sometimes the hardest part is seeing someone fall into, you know, a mistake that we've seen many others fall into. It's like a, a rerun of a TV show we don't want to rewatch. Next one on the list is insufficient access control lists on network shares and services. Again, this is usually caused by not wanting to go through the, the hassle of adding individual permissions to shares or services. So you either just change mod 777 or shown it to the wrong user or remove all the restrictions altogether. Um, I mean, 
there's no, not many ways to go around this. You either give permissions to groups or to users or fix the permissions yourself. You have to do the work. You have to do the legwork to use the correct permissions and ACLs on shares. Um, there's no magic bullet, at least to my knowledge. In the past, I've tried creating specific groups for specific shares, but then you, you just switch the management from the share to the group, and it's basically the same thing in a different place. Um, there are no good advices here other than you need to do the job. Just giving everybody full access to everything, that's going to bite you in the end. And also keep in mind, some people might not think of this, but sometimes the, the threat is an accidental deletion. If someone has write access to a share, they could have had read-only access to, and then they, um, you know, you know what happens to all of us. We have a cup of coffee on our desk, and we're using the mouse, and then next thing you know, we accidentally hit the coffee with the our finger on the mouse button, and we click something. And what if someone accidentally clicks the delete button? And obviously, we could argue there should be backups, but at the same time, we have to understand if someone has access to delete something, they might. So just keep that in mind. I once converted a company to read only and all the shares unless they made a business case to need more because that's what we, you know, they actually ran into that in the past and it was not fun. Yeah. And to the people mentioning backup on the chat, just rem a reminder, just this week, um, Google Cloud apparently lost some users' files, so the cloud itself might not count as a backup, so make sure you have actually backups on site or something like that on a reliable storage. Um, it happens. Uh, the cloud sometimes has some cloudy days. Um, <laughs> something tied yeah. to this, um, it's not just a matter of giving the right permissions and giving the right uh, access to specific users or specific groups. A good at least I consider it a good piece of advice. Um, learn how did the uh, make sure you have logs of the file creations and file deletions at least, so that that day when somebody loses an important file and you get asked, okay, who deleted this? You have something to show. Um, you know which user pressed the wrong button, and you're be, you're able to answer that question. Um, if you don't have a the more robust or a dedicated tool to track that that type of file level changes. Um, Audit D will give you that ability, and it's built in on any distribution, so you can deploy it anywhere. It has a somewhat confusing syntax if you're just looking at it starting now, but it's a good way to, to track those changes. Yep. The next one we've also harped about in the past, it's poor credential hygiene. Oh boy. Yeah, uh, oh yeah, that's a that's a big one. And sometimes it I mean it's confusing for people that, you know, the the end users that aren't, you know, security geniuses or perhaps they, they haven't had that security training we've been recommending organizations give out. Um and and I'll just give you a uh, all the listeners a quick joke and then we'll get serious and talk about it. You know, password hygiene is a real problem. Like, for example, um, as the joke goes, something like, you know, the administrator was looking at the hashes and one was super long and it was like a, a person that's not really into technology asked the person, why do you have such a long password? And then the person looks confused and says, I don't know what you mean. I'm following the protocol. Um, my password, which you shouldn't say, is Mickey, Minnie, Goofy, Huey, Dewey, Louie, Donald, Sacramento, uh, seven characters in the capital. Um, you know, obviously I kid, but, you know, we, we run into things like that where someone doesn't really understand the policy because it, it's, it's not as easy as it is for us. But uh, the reality is, 
a, um, a an easy to guess password is is pretty much an open door. You know, it, it's just something that a um, threat actor will get in pretty quickly. And one of the tools I like is Password Haystacks. You could go Google that. It's on GRC's website. And on there, you could type in your password. It doesn't actually keep a password. Um, just be safe. Don't type your actual password. But if you're thinking of using one, it'll tell you the brute force scenario, how quickly it could be hacked. But um, in general, this is a very complicated problem to solve because it's something that requires education. But then again, we're only as safe as the weakest link. And I mean, at this point in time, it seems like no amount of training and awareness gets through. Um, so the unpopular advice is make it mandatory. If people don't come up with complex passwords on their own, either because they don't want to, they just want to be annoying, they don't understand the risks, whatever. Either make them really complex and tell them about password managers. And this is a really good selling point. You don't have to remember your password as long as your password manager knows it. Um, so you can use like 50 character passwords and it doesn't matter. You don't have to remember it. It doesn't matter how complex it is or not. Um, you just need to do your to use your password manager. Then you move the, pass, the problem to securing the password manager itself. And in the past, we've seen how password managers are also vulnerable to security issues. So rather than going through the hassle and going through the motions, enforce multi-factor authentication, but enforce it in a way that's actually secure. Like we said before, uh, don't just use things that you can use on a single device. Don't just require a password manager and an authenticator that's running on the same device. Um, YubiKeys, for example, are an option. Um, some type of uh, other hardware token that people need to use their identity card I don't know, go crazy, an iris scan to open your computer or your session. Um, there are ways to, to improve the security on this. Again, and it seems like a recurring theme on every single of these problems. It's always convenience versus security. You never go get away from this. It's always either more convenient or more secure. There's no two ways about it. There's no magic bullet. If there were, everybody would be using it by now. Um, if you want to increase your security posture, it's going to be less convenient for your users. But it all depends on your risk profile and what the amount of flack that you want to take when you enforce these changes and the amount of buy-in that you get from management in enforcing the changes company-wide. But if you really are serious about increasing the security posture of your organization, you need buy-in from higher management and it has Unfortunately, and it is going to be less convenient for the users. They will be mad about it for a while, but then the only thing to do there is let them know that, yeah, this is less convenient, but it's better that we don't have all our data leaked tomorrow or exposed on the internet or something like that. And we need to do it this way. There's no magic bullet about it. Yeah, there's going to be opposition, but, but just, yeah, like you said, let them know. When... <laughs> And this is something that I used to do and actually never told any of my colleagues. But when you're out in the about and you're not working from home and you go talk to somebody in a different department, keep your eye out for post-it notes stuck to monitors and you'll be amazed to spot some passwords written down there. Um, the best solution for that problem, I don't know if you've ever watched Game of Thrones, but the walk of shame tends to be a good solution for this type of problems. Um, Shame the users that are using the post-it notes. 
Um, they really shouldn't be doing it at this point. They should never have done it in the, fir in the first place, but doing it now, it's really, really no-no. And randomly check underneath the keyboard too, because that's another uh, common hiding spot for these post-it notes. And now we come to the last one. And I'm actually, I have mixed feelings about this last one. It's called unrestricted code execution. This isn't like the other nine. This is when you have systems that are set up to only accept running whatever it is they are supposed to be running. It makes managing those systems a hassle. You won't be able to run your off-the-shelf tools on those systems because it wasn't approved, so you'll have to approve the executable, you'll have to add it to a list somewhere. It makes them really, really tough to manage these systems. I understand why this is a problem. I really don't consider it to be I don't think it's that important security-wise for the simple reason that you're going to have an allowed list on a given system. It's going to be running a specific service. And usually what happens is that when a service has a vulnerability, that service gets exploited. And whatever code is run by a, an adversary will be run underneath that, that service. And that service has already been approved, so this wouldn't prevent it. Um, I, again, falling under the convenience versus security thing, but I really, it eludes me the, the great benefit of this type of security posture here. Yeah, I can see both sides, but it is going to be more work. And I feel like to your point, you'll be spending more time chasing this than you would have free time to address any of the other nine. One thing I can say that's fairly easy to implement, but does not by itself constitute the requirement here, but is a benefit that's similar, is no exec on mounts. So if you have, you know, your users mounting a file share that is only for, let's say, Word documents or something, um, then it doesn't need to be executable. The executable binary program should not be able to run from that uh, area. So that's one thing you could do that doesn't really give you a lot, but that does that is fairly easy to implement so long as that's compatible with the purpose for that share. But then again, you could probably argue that um, goes for the, the share point that we mentioned earlier about securing your shares and having access level control. So I guess uh, both, well, I can see both sides. It's complicated, it's hard, but it's definitely something to at least consider, I would say. Oh, I get why it's on the list. I, I understand mm -hmm. the, the benefits of it. I just don't see it as important as the other ones. But again, this is my personal opinion on this one. If it's the list, I'm sure they had good reasons to put it there. They were able to proper, probably use it to exploit something somewhere, and they deemed it important enough to add to the list. Compared to the other ones, I see the other ones as more obvious things to start from and more obvious problems to address first than this last one. But again, there are pro probably some benefits that I'm missing here, but that might just be me. I think it, like you said it earlier, it really depends on the organization's uh, you know, setup, it, depending on whether they can or can't do this. Another thing you'll run into is even if you do implement this and then you update a piece of software and then names of binaries change, you, it might not immediately occur to you that, well, the application's crashing. Why is it crashing? Well, because you know the executables that it added or changed the name of now can't run. And then you got to find out you know what's changed on the file system to, I mean, there's a lot of work. And, and like I was saying, 
it's going to take time away from the other nine. So you have to really focus on the other nine, I would say, but uh, more so than that, because it could have a detrimental effect if you spend too much time on one thing versus another. Yep. Um, so I guess that's our show for today. Um, I know that it feels like this is a very that this is very basic stuff if you're into cybersecurity, but apparently it's not. And big organizations are still being hit by these problems. People need to be alert by it because everybody is focusing on the latest and greatest technology and security vulnerability of the week. But these things that are foundational, that are basic stuff that need to be addressed first, these are falling through the cracks. We need to pay more attention to this, not just the flashiest and the thing that gets the more the more limelight out there. Um, thank you very much to everybody who joined. As always, it was a pleasure, Jade. Yep. And until the next one. See you soon.